All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about Bakhmut, and it looks like we really are in the final stages of the battle for Bakhmut. And I think one of the, the more interesting questions is that, that maybe will be answered as, as this battle winds down, um, is, is why, why did uh, Zelensky pour in so many troops to Bakhmut? How many troops are uh, in danger of being encircled? Uh, will, will the Russians close the the circle and create a pauldron, or or will they allow some sort of uh, of movement out of the out of the uh, the city and and perhaps um, fire on those on those movements leaving the, the the city? I mean, there's I think there's a lot of questions from the Ukrainian side of things with with Bakhmut, which which are very uh, unanswered. A lot of unanswered whys. Why do they do all these things? Why did they insist on keeping this territory? I mean, from the Russian side of things, I think it's 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 a given now. And any day now, this will be yes. the city will be taken. Yes, but I'm, I'm I, very curious. What? Why did they let this happen? Absolutely, yeah, Ukraine. Just, why did Ukraine let yeah. this happen? Absolutely. Let, let me just say, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that we are now absolutely not just in the end game, but in the end part of the end game. Now, um, over the last couple of hours, there's been a whole flurry of reports of major Russian advances, and um, they've now almost cut the last remaining road into the into the town. And there was a lot of talk up to a few days ago that the Ukrainians were able to use fields and country lanes to get into Bakhmut, even when the main roads were cut. I've always been sceptical about that, by the way. But the latest reports say that, you know, there's now heavy rain, fog, <laughs> and these um, country lanes and these fields are now swampy. The ground is soft. And you can't really use them in that kind of way. So we are now within hours, probably, of a total encirclement. And there was a, a whole cluster of reports last night. The first one was that uh, Zaluzhny, who is the commander of the Ukrainian armed forces, told Zelensky that this, that this road is now only usable, that now at night the implication was we're almost cut off, we've got to get the men out. So that was one report. The second report was that Zelensky, and this is confirmed. The first report was not confirmed. But the second report is confirmed. Zelensky sacked the general in overall command of Ukrainian forces in Donbass, which um, is a strange thing to do if this general is doing well. It strongly suggests that this particular general is being set up as the scapegoat once Bakhmut falls. And the third reason to sense that the end is coming is that all over Twitter last night and on the Ukrainian internet, there were all sorts of stories and rumours about a brilliant, successful Ukrainian counterattack that had entirely reversed the whole situation. And it became clear within a few hours that that was not the case, <laughs> that in fact there'd be no Ukrainian counterattack at all. And people only do this sort of thing. They only fantasize about counterattacks when they sense that the situation has become completely critical. So, you know, we are, we are, it seems to me, as you correctly said, in the end game 
of the end game, the end of the end game. And as to how many troops are in the process of being trapped, well, one report I saw, which looks as plausible as any, is that there's around 7,000 Ukrainian troops in Bakhmut itself, but apparently there are lots of others in the uh, immediate countryside around Bakhmut. And many of them, because this is, you know, a sort of broad pincer movement, are now in danger of being encircled as well. So I don't, I don't think we can, I, I don't think we should try and guess a figure. But it's, it's a lot of men, and that this coming on top of weeks of reports now that Ukrainian losses holding on to Bakhmut have been simply horrendous, that they've been counted in the tens of thousands. And, you know, the German intelligence agency, the BND, said this. Um, U.S. militaries apparently were warning about this. I don't think this is really something that anybody doubts any longer, that the Ukrainians have paid an enormous price trying to hold on to Bachmann. So why did Zelensky and the Ukrainian military command, because even if they were advising at various times, you know, retreat from Bakhmut. None of them came out openly and challenged Zelensky about this. Why did they continue to hold on to Bakhmut with the intensity that they did? Well, as I've said many times, I'm not a military strategist. I'm not somebody who can, you know, I, I, I don't like to play armchair general. But the consensus is that Bakhmut stands on top of the major communication lines that bind together the various parts of the Ukrainian defense system in Donbass. So it's the key central hub. And beyond that, to the west of Bakhmut, but interconnected with all the fighting that goes on in Bakhmut itself, we are in various hills and higher ground, Apparently, that's also being lost as well. And that once Bakhmut falls, and once the Russians have consolidated control of the high ground, they not only control the communications in Donetsk and in Donbass, this you know, centre of Ukrainian resistance, they're not only able to disrupt Ukrainian movements, but they can also position their artillery and they can start shelling the remaining Ukrainian-held cities, towns, uh, Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. And I saw a report uh, early this morning which said that Russian artillery is already within 20 kilometres of Kramatorsk, which is the bigger of these two places, by the way, and, um, and 20 kilometres does bring... Kramatorsk well within the range of the heavier Russian guns. So it, it puts, in other words, the loss of Bakhmut would put Ukraine in a critical position when it comes to its ability to hold on to Donbass. Now, whether these facts, you know, the fact that it's, you know, the major transport hub and the fact that it is, it in fact controls the high ground, were enough to justify this horrendous loss of life. That is another matter again. I mean, it seems to me personally, 
um, from a hum humanitarian point of view, from a humane point of view, that nothing can justify this appalling loss of life. But that was the decision that Zelensky and the Ukrainian high command made, that they were going to cling on to Bakhmut like, you know, you know, with grim, the kind of grim determination that they've shown, that they were willing to sacrifice tens of thousands of Ukrainian lives to do it. And as we see, they've sacrificed all those tens of thousands of Ukrainian lives. Highly likely, thousands of Ukrainian soldiers are now going to be encircled and cut off, and they're going to lose Bakhmut anyway. So, you know, I don't see what they've gained by doing it. No, it was not worth it. I agree with you. It was absolutely not worth it. But, um, you know, the, the smoke and mirrors that the that the the collective West played, the United States, let's say the, the, the Pentagon or the State Department played with Bakhmut was uh, I thought it was very interesting because they were sending the message that um, Ukraine should retreat. But from Bakhmut, they were, that's what they were saying publicly. But I believe privately, because they're so obsessed with optics and media, as is the Alensky regime, privately, they said, do not retreat from Bakhmut because we have this G7 meeting and we can't look like we're losing. Do not retreat from Bakhmut because we have this Munich security conference and we can't look like we're losing. Do not retreat from Bakhmut because we have X, Y, and Z. You know, they were always dragging it on and on and on to, to, to make sure that there was no, nothing that would discourage the, this, this 40, 50 state coalition, nothing that would break this unity of this, what they call this coalition of European and, and uh, US, Canada, Australia, these, these states. And, and they, they didn't want any cracks appearing. They didn't want leaders to come to these meetings or these events or these conferences and say, yeah, you want me to give over my leopard tanks or give over my F-16s or whatever, but you know, you're losing and you're losing the most important city in this conflict. And to me, the giveaway was when they come out with articles saying Bakhmut is of no strategic importance. The minute they say that, I say projection, it's the exact opposite. That's the truth. That's how you get to the truth of everything that you're hearing from CNN and New York Times and from these anonymous sources and U.S. government officials. What they tell you is projection and reverse it. So when they say Bakhmut is of no strategic importance and they hammer that point home in the articles, that's when you know this is the most important strategic city. You don't need to be a military expert at all. Just parse through the, the words and their articles and their media, and you understand that this city is key. And so my point is, is do you agree that much of the reasoning to hold on to Bakhmut outside of its military strategic geography, the, the importance of the city itself, much of the importance was about keeping Project Ukraine going and keeping all of the invested partners on board because they couldn't sense that you know, this is, things are going really bad and, and here it is, we, we're seeing it. So why, why should we, why should we give you our, our tanks and our jets and our money? They, they had to keep everyone on board and, and, and that's, it, they just kicked the can down the road, but there's no more road to, to, to kick the can down anymore.
I think you're completely correct. Now, can I just say what I think has clearly happened? And I don't think, I mean, I think it's completely in line with what your point. I think what has happened, and it's not the first time, is that the experts, the, the people, you know, the uniform military people in the Pentagon, the intelligence people at the BND, the, the German intelligence agency, they're coming back and they're telling, they're telling the political leadership in London and in Berlin, look, Bakhmut is undefendable. You're sacrificing lives to no purpose. Um, retreat, it can't be held. But the political leadership, the neocons, in other words, the man in the Oval Office and the team around him, the people we've talked about before, Blinken, Sullivan, Newland, um, they don't want to listen to that. They didn't listen to the experts over the sanctions. They're not going to listen to the experts over Bachmann because they have a completely different ideological political agenda. And that ideological political agenda is to keep unrelenting pressure on Russia. This isn't for them, ultimately, about Ukraine at all. And I think this is... a thing people need to centrally understand. They want to keep this coalition together. They want to keep the, the sanctions on Russia going. They want to intensify the military pressure on the Russians as they believe it. And, you know, if Bakhmut falls and tens of thousands of Ukrainians die, and if thousands of them are taken prisoner, that's not something they even really notice. They're not even aware of it. It doesn't really register with them because it's much more important to keep this coalition together. And, of course, if Ukraine is just giving up territory, then, as you correctly say, people start to say in Paris, in Berlin, in Madrid, in Rome, even to some extent in London, and, of course, most important of all, in D.C., they start to say... Well, if Ukraine is retreating, if it's clearly losing, then why are we pr providing them with all these tanks and machines and all these hundreds of billions of dollars? Why are we carrying on with these sanctions when report after report is now coming out that the sanctions are not working? Why are we doing these things if on the battlefield it's clear that Ukraine is losing? So they disregard what the experts say, they tell Ukraine, stand firm, and there will always be another meeting, you know, be, be it the Munich Security Conference, a meeting in Rammstein, a G20 meeting, a G7 meeting. There will always be a meeting where they say to, uh, uh, you know, Zelensky and his people, you must hold on in Bakhmut or in Kramatorsk or wherever, <laughs> just a little longer because we've got to get this meeting over with. We've got to maintain alliance unity there. And they'll just string the Ukrainians along um, <laughs> indefinitely in this way until, of course, and this is a point some people have been making, there are no Ukrainians left. But, but that's the kind of calculus that these very ideological people, very politically minded people are following. For them, it is all optics. <laughs> that's how it always works when people think, in entirely ideological terms. So, I mean, I, and I think, you know, that's, I think, as I said, you basically nailed it. I don't think they will ever 
tell Ukraine to retreat. Again, we hear that the experts, the military people, are telling Ukraine, don't undertake counteroffensives now. You've got to learn how to use all this new equipment that we've given you. And, of course, the same team are telling Ukraine, you must go on the offensive immediately because we need to have that done before the summer because we're going to have other... Otherwise, we're going to have problems keeping the flow of aid going to the summer. And, you know, it was the same. The Fed, the uh, ECB, the Wall Street Bank said, don't disconnect Russia from SWIFT. So, of course, they go ahead, disconnect Russia from SWIFT. They don't listen to what the experts say. I mean, you know, it's it, it's something it's something that we've all been through, I think, in life on a personal level. We've all been strung along. We yeah. know the feeling, what it's like to be strung along. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the sense that I get is that the people of Ukraine, the military, the, the people that are fighting, I, I just get I, my sense is that they are being strung along. And it's not it's not about Ukraine. It's about just stringing them along a little bit longer because something is going to happen in Russia. Something's going to give. There's going to be a regime change. Something's going to going to break the Russian government. Or let's just string this along a little bit more just until the spring offensive, right? Now it's the spring offensive. We got to keep things going until the spring offensive. That's the next talk. And then it'll be the summer offensive. Then Alexander, it'll be the winter offensive. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just going to string them along a little bit longer because they got to sell a little bit more high Mars to uh to Poland. They gotta sell some more missiles to Japan. They gotta pump some more money into Ukraine so that they can get it out through the through through the back door. And it, it's always these things that they're cooking up to keep this going yeah. just a little bit longer. We gotta keep this going a little bit longer because we can't have a debacle in Ukraine while Joe is about to run for re-election in 2024. Yeah. We can't have that either. So there's yes. always an excuse. And, and I was watching um, a clip from NBC News. Chuck Todd was interviewing Jake Sullivan, one of the inner circle of these decision makers in the Biden White House. Not one question about Bakhmut. This was an no. interview yesterday. The not one, not one statement about Bakhmut. What did Jake Sullivan say? Our goals are to push the Russians out of the east and south of Ukraine and regain the territory. And then we will address Crimea. That was, that was what he said. I know, yeah. And, and I the journalist didn't I give to, any no, pushback. He didn't say yeah, no, nothing. No, 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 no. And this is what they're I, telling the American people. So the American people think, okay, sounds good to me. You know, everything's going okay in, in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been strung along. I'm sure you've been strung along. I'm sure all of us have been. And we know exactly what it's like and how infuriating it is eventually and how your doubts over time start to grow. And, of course, by a certain point, this is the other problem with Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, they become themselves invested in believing in these myths. And that keeps them going even longer than they should do, even though even as their doubts probably are increasing. But you're absolutely correct. I think you're describing the whole thing perfectly. I would add also, and this is a thing that I've always noticed and found with very ideological, very politically minded people, people who think in these kind of terms, the kind of ways that we've been talking about, the way the neocons think, which is very ideological, which is that beneath all the show of you know, ideological dogmas and certainties, 
there is always a deep cynicism. It's it, it, because as these people don't really function, if you like, in the world of the actual, they they don't really see. They aren't able to see these bodies that are piling up in Bachman. I mean, it's not something that really registers with them. And it, 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 it's very horrible and very disturbing. But it's not the first time in history that, as I said, an ideological group have gained control of a government and are driving things in this, you know, to this sort of end. And I have to say, they'll go on doing it until, as I said, they... They're no longer there anymore. And I don't know how long that's going to take. But for the moment, they're still very much in control. Okay, the, the final question is, uh, what, what happens when Bakhmut is taken by the Russians? What's, what's next? I'm going to make a or guess. Well, it they... out. What happens when Donbass? Yeah. Because Bakhmut is, is, is the linchpin. What, what happens when Donbass is, Donetsk and Lugansk is fully taken by the Russians, because once they get Bakhmut, it's pretty much yeah. game over for for the Russians taking taking Donbass. What happens next? I, I agree with that assessment, by the way. As I said, I'm not a that's military a person. But, I mean, that's, I'm not yeah. a military person, but I tend to agree. I think if Bakhmut is captured, then I think the fall of Kramatorsk and, Lugan, and uh, Slavyansk is probably only a matter of time and probably not that much time. It won't be as long as capturing Bakhmut has been. And that is the fall of Donbass. And it's the end of what is by far the biggest and most difficult battle in the war. Now, what happens next once Donbass is cleared? You must understand this. It depends mostly on what the Russians decide to do. Because the Russians could do one of two things. They could say, look, we've cleared Donbass, we've fulfilled our mission, we're going to stop now. We want uh, Kherson, Zaporozhye, we want Kherson city back. But if Ukraine is prepared to negotiate on that basis, then, you know, we can find some kind of a deal done. It won't be our only conditions, but, you know, we can make a deal on that basis. Now, in theory, um, our side might accept that. And it's possible that there will be some people in Paris and Berlin, perhaps more in Paris than Berlin, who might be interested in going down this route. The group that I'm talking about in Washington and their supporters in London will, I am sure, reject that out of hand. And if that they do reject that, and the Russians press on. And as I understand it, there's very little left in that case between Donbass and the Dnieper, the, the, the Dnieper River. If the Russians then start advancing all the way up to the Dnieper River so that they're opposite Dnieper, you know, this big city on the Dnieper River, the third biggest city in um, Ukraine, well, then they're at the heart of Ukraine. Um, the, the war becomes existential for Ukraine. Up to now, the Russians have been saying it's not our aim to destroy Ukraine. But if they reach the Dnieper, opposite Dnieper, then you can start to talk about a danger to the existence of Ukraine. At which point, the group in the White House, this is what I'm confident they will do, 
they will want to escalate more. So then, you know, we'll be hearing not just about fighter jets and attack missiles. They'll be demanding even more weapons and also NATO personnel to operate those weapons in order to, as they put it, save Ukraine. In fact, as the battle for Donbass ends, we're going to see a media campaign from these people and their allies in the media, where they are strongest, by the way. That's their, their strongest positions are in the media, of the like we have never seen before. And we must be prepared for this. The one thing I will say is that notwithstanding this media dominance, there are now strong signs that public opinion is turning against them. Um, to a great extent in Germany, even more so in the United States. So there's going to be an enormous battle fought over this. And, well, we'll see how it works out. Yeah, I, I fear the same thing. As the battle for Donbass ends, you might enter the stage of, uh, of the war between Russia and NATO. Yeah, if the if the battle if the battle of Ukraine a battle of Donbass ends, not a proxy war by the way not exactly a proxy war, if, exactly if the battle of if the battle of Donbass ends, the battle for Ukraine starts, and it's not a battle between Russia and Ukraine, it's a battle between Russia and this neocon group, and the question is then, can they get the rest of NATO behind them? Up to now, they've always succeeded. So we'll see. <laughs> okay. Go to duran.locals.com and we are on Rockfin as well. And go to the Durant shop. 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.